So a couple of weeks ago, I commented that as someone who is new to the liturgical calendar, I found it fascinating that Epiphany is, in fact, this thing that we associate with a moment is, in fact, a season. And this seeming contradiction actually rings true for me because we need revelations, sparks of insight, but we also need time, a communally prescribed season to sit and ponder upon it. So I don't know if an epiphanic practice is even a thing. I should know, but I don't. Um, But during the past few weeks, I've been trying to notice areas of disconnect in my life, and actually life in general, where there is a gap between a significant insight, a revelation, if you will, and its impact on my actual life and practice. And what has become obvious to me is that rather than consistency and coherence being the norm, disconnects and inconsistency rule the day. Yes, on the one hand, I long for a consistent life. As we have been singing, and I was so drawn into the worship, the praise this morning, and I really do mean it when we sing out together I want to build my life on you as the only foundation. That is a desperate and true and sincere call and longing of my heart. But I am altogether much too cozy and comfortable with my disconnects. And that could be, I've noticed, as simple as saying I need to go on a diet and then sneaking a midnight snack or at a deeper level, trusting God with my and my family's future without anxiety. I bring this up because this penchant for living lives of disconnects on a multitude of levels is, I think, the common thread for our scripture lessons for today. So in our reading from 1 Corinthians 15, Apostle Paul addresses this to those who are at the Corinthian church who are saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. But for Paul, the ultimate epiphany is Christ's resurrection, upon which everything hinges. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, if there is no resurrection, Our preaching is useless, our faith is futile, we are people most to be pitied. But if Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, then everything about life, death, and what we place our hope in has been changed. Paul rightly identifies Christ's resurrection not as an isolated event, but the powerful and the definitive inbreaking of reality with a capital R, right? 
the resurrection of Christ is not something that we remember just fondly as a historical event, nor is it something that only impacts our understanding and vision of heaven. Indeed, if Christ has been raised from the dead, Paul says, it necessarily changes everything about everything to disconnect Christ's resurrection from our own encounter with death and how we live this life now in hope then is theologically impossible, logically implausible. If Christ has been raised from the dead, this is not a mere display of how powerful God is, but, he, but Christ then is the first fruits, the first inbreaking of life, a victory over death, and death's hold on all of us. To believe, to live, otherwise is to fail to make the connection to this greatest of epiphanies. So, when we hold on to the center of Christ's cross and the resurrection, what does such a reality look like? What does a life lived consistently in such a new reality look like? And in one sense, I think this is what is being described in our gospel reading from Luke 6 and also from our Old Testament reading from Jeremiah 17. So looking at Luke 6 now, this is a very famous, well, a little bit less famous, Sermon on the Level Place, as it is known. It's not quite as catchy as Sermon on the Mount. I think Luke has a reason for that. It's this image of just Christ amongst the people. So he's conveying something to us, uh, not just, I think, a geographical location as well. But we encounter Jesus providing a description of such a reality, the kingdom of God, and a list of blessings. Now, many of Many have attempted to read the Beatitudes, both here and in Matthew, as a list of things that we can do to receive God's blessings. To do so, however, would be to turn these life-giving words into, as a friend of mine says, either frustrating idealism or oppressive legalism. It's very simple. If I remember back in my college days, being told that these are, in fact, the B attitudes. You guys, anybody ever hear that? The B attitudes? These are the attitudes that you should have, you should try to aspire to have. But do you know how hard it is and, and how uh, eventually superficial it almost becomes to try to have a, poor, a poorness of spirit? You try, or you try to practice any of these things to receive God's blessing, try to hold on to that. The word beatitude, of course, is not about our attitudes, but in fact about a fancy word for saying blessings. And I think we get into such misreadings because, in one part, because we hear everything Jesus says, we too often hear things that Jesus says individualistically, psychologically, as our own for our own spirituality, but rather than what Jesus is doing here, which is to describe the kingdom. It is not a place for us to attain by being poor, 
or being hungry, or, or by weeping, or by being persecuted. It is not a place for us to attain by doing those things, but it is a place where those who suffer such things are not forgotten, as they would be too often in the realities that we live in. Nor the marginalized looked down upon. These are, they are picked up by God and blessed, which means then when we do that, when we look out for the poor, when we feed the hungry or care about those who weep and are willing to forego our reputation for the sake of Christ's gospel of grace, then we are stepping into the kingdom values. We are stepping into a reality that's consistent with the values of our Trinitarian God. Those whom our society would rather forget about, God does not. That is what is being declared. That is what is being declared about what and how God values. For the creator of the universe is none other than the God who is love. Jesus then goes on in Luke, on this list, with another list, a list of woes, on those who live disconnected from this truth. Woe to those who are rich. Woe to you who are full now. Woe to you who laugh. Woe to you when people speak well of you. But again, why are they so woeful? It certainly isn't because those things in and of themselves are on some sort of God's naughty list, right? Again, if you think about them as some sort of an individualistic spirituality, you get caricatures. So, for example, if I take this to mean that you should not eat to fullness, woe to you who are full. If your appetite has been satiated, woe to you. If that is the case, then we are all in deep trouble. I will never go to a buffet again. If you hear it this way, these teachings become another form of spiritual legalism. But when you think about these as values, where the pursuit of wealth, stomach, pleasure, reputation, without concern about the backs of those whom such pursuits might be built upon, without concern about the well-being of others, when these pursuits become justifiable end goals of what it means to live a good life, then surely they are to be woed because they run counter to the values of the kingdom. So the question then for us in this contrasting list of blessings and woes is do we trust the, the reality that Christ declares? Do I trust God's version of reality enough to not chase after the riches for my comfort and trust God to be my comfort? Do I trust God's call to love others as higher than my right to pursue filling my own stomach? Do I trust God as a source of infinite joy 
that I actually care when my joy is pursued at the cost of another's sadness? Do I trust that my identity in Christ is far more important than what others may say or not say about me? If we are being honest, I think in our American Christianity, and I'm speaking about this, not pointing fingers, but as actually as a family member, right? I think we have fostered a spirituality that lands far more on the sides, side of the woes than on the side of the blessed. As disconnected as those Corinthians were from the meaning of Christ's resurrection, too many times our spirituality have pursued such a route. How then do we begin to assess our hearts? And here, I think, the Jeremiah passage helps us. The prophet Jeremiah also provides a set of beatitudes of his own. But he says it like this. He says, Cursed is the one who trusts a man, but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, and blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Now, I know where we all sincerely want to land on this, but Jeremiah also um, ends, the reading ends with this line that makes it even harder for us to say, I am landing on the side of God. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? That's where Jeremiah lands and says, you don't even know where your heart is leading you. Right? I think it is saying that there is a deep disconnect. What we say we love and what we really love are not necessarily the same thing. And this self-deceit, this disconnect runs deeper than we often would like to admit. There was, a, um, there was an organizational behavior expert named Chris Aguirres from the Harvard Business School and he observed this about organizations, that they will often have these stated values, that the values, and you've seen this a lot nowadays, everybody has core values up on their walls and their web pages, and this is one of the things that they will advertise. And he says that there are stated values, and often they are far from their values in practice. But the interesting that he notes is that he noticed that ironically, having something explicitly stated as a value actually inoculates that organization from hearing critique about how they might be failing in upholding those values. You get that? What do you mean we don't care about customers? That's our core value. It says it right up there on our wall. We care about customers, therefore we care about customers. Right? I, I can't tell you, um, so I do some, I actually work, do some consulting work, working with different organizations, nonprofits, and churches. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this uh, pattern repeated. This sort of double deception, where we don't do what we say we value, 
and yet convince ourselves that we're doing it. I think that gets close to what Jeremiah is getting at when he says the heart is deceptive above all things. Who can know? We want to say we trust God, live a coherent, consistent life with Christ, but often we will blind ourselves to how this isn't true. The problem isn't that this happens in our lives, but rather the problem is when we begin to believe that our hearts are not that deceitful and not do the patient work of aligning how we live with our central declaration that Christ is risen. This sounds like a real downer of a message so far. (laughs) And if I was still kind of working out of my Reformed theology, I think I would say, you know, we're miserable, sinful sinners, and we just need to rely on the grace of God. That's what we're getting at. Let's all pray. But I think there is practices that we can do that helps us, and there's actually hope in these words as well. And I think one of them is actually to see Christ's woes and Jeremiah's judgments not as words of judgment or as finality is not judgment. The point is actually to lead us to grace. And I realize as I'm doing this right now, as I'm, it's occurs to me that this sounds a lot more like a Lenten practice than an epiphany practice to make ourselves go through the woes a little bit to get to the hope. But I think there is a conduit of grace that is being provided by Jesus here, that Jesus' woes, in fact, reveal to me, at least in my experience, grace as well. What I mean is when we encounter these disconnects in our lives, when we come upon these woes that force us to see that the story that we tell about ourselves is not really the story that we're living, we can choose to live in denial and pretend that it never happened, run away, hide in shame, or we can face up to the reality of this disconnect and learn and actually grow from it. Brene Brown talks about this as honestly dwelling on our face-down moments. Face down, you fall face down. And I don't know if you've ever, ever experienced such moments where it's just, you just fall both physically emotionally, spiritually, you just feel like I just landed somewhere really hard and I don't even want to get up. But to honestly dwell in these face-down moments will get us stronger and better and I would say even more connected. And I've shared with some of you one of my face-down moments that have been pivotal for me in many ways. Uh, When my daughter was in second grade, I was helping her with her homework, and it was a struggle, and maybe some of you guys could relate. And I could, I could literally feel like this fuse, or I don't know what it was. I, I sense if there's this 
graph of a patience or it was a jar that I had of patience. I could see the leak, all of it leaking out. I could feel this coming out and just going, oh no, it's coming and it's coming. And I could just feel that. And you know what part of that was, was I also knew at that moment that I was also going through a very stressful time at my church. And instead of owning up, and this is one thing I could not do at that time, I could not own up to the fact that I was living in anxiety while declaring God's grace upon people, that I was building up my life in such a way so that the stress, I was saying I got the stress, I got the stress, I got the stress, but all I was doing was just internalizing it. And I was, you know, my basic approach to psychology, my personal psychology was just, you know, try to push it down really deep because, you know, then it'll be okay. And, and I could feel it coming out in this moment. And it came out. And it came out in anger. And it came out in frustration to my daughter. And I found myself yelling at my daughter for her inability to do this work. And it sounds worse because right now I'm going, I yelled like that to a second grader. And I goes, oh my goodness, that sounds really bad, even now. And she was hurt. And, but the thing is, I still didn't even realize my face down moment until she said this to me. In her confusion, she said, you used to be nice to me. And something just cut straight deep and straight to my heart of just how I didn't have this thing together, that my life full of disconnect at that moment just came, like, exposed. I felt so much shame. Something in her words laid bare this disconnect. I wasn't the father that I told myself that I was. And the last thing I wanted to do was for anyone to ever hear this story. I wanted to tell my daughters, it's fine, just don't tell your mother that I, this happened. But that story became a grace moment for me in so many ways because for whatever reason, the Spirit was also working through other people in my life at that time. I didn't follow my initial impulse to just run away and just hide that story. I sat with the story. I shared that story. I told that story to my wife. I told that story to my friends. I, stole, I shared that story with others despite my fears about what other people may say about me. And God met me in that woeful place. And it was his revelation that even in that place, it is safe. I had to come to terms with the fact that there was a part of me that was more interested in my reputation as a good father than actually being one. That woe became an epiphany 
And this isn't just a parental failure story. I, I hope you understand that. I have plenty of those that I could share, but it is more deeply, it is just one of the many ways in which I, was, I realized I was valuing when people spoke well about me rather than trusting God. These face-down moments are quite different, I think, for different people. And if I've understood anything about things like enneagrams, is that we have different sins that we're susceptible to, different disconnects. The point of meditating on these face-down moments, those times that reveal our hearts' deceits, that our life that our lives are not as coherent as we like to tell ourselves, is of course not to wallow in guilt, but rather to open ourselves up, just receive the grace, become the kind of people that care about the things of God, that care about the things that God cares about. For me, if I may, may say it this way, it has become a predictable place for me to meet God. So I want to ask you now, if you would consider an area of disconnect in your life with a vision of life that Christ lays out for us, maybe that disconnect is in how you think about your things or in your pursuit of filling your hunger or your pleasure or your reputation. Or maybe you know that there's a disconnect in the way that you respond to different people or different criticism or different comments that trigger disproportionate emotional response from you. Maybe the disconnect is revealed in the way and the things that you daydream about. What would it look like for you to connect those parts of your life to the centrality of who Christ is.